All right, ready? Are you ready to go? Okay. Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast. I'm Reeve Hamilton. On this episode, we're talking about reality, particularly of the virtual or augmented variety. I'm joined by Rich Radke, a professor in the Electrical Computer and Systems Engineering Department at Rensselaer. Hi. And Jason Hicken, an associate professor in the university's Department of Mechanical, Aerospace, and Nuclear Engineering. Hello. Together, they've created the Rensselaer Augmented and Virtual Environment, or RAVE, which is in its first year of operation. Well, why don't you describe it for us? So uh, the RAVE Lab is something we put together, uh, I guess, that we had our grand opening at the end of November, and um, we had been thinking about it and acquiring equipment for it and building it, I think, throughout the course of 2018. And now it's kind of in full operation um, this semester, spring 2019. Uh, and basically, we have a whole bunch of virtual reality rigs, uh, high-end computers, along with uh, high-quality headsets. We've got augmented reality devices, uh, like the Microsoft HoloLens, and we've got phones and tablets and Oculus Go's and things that are a little bit more portable consumer-grade equipment. And then we've got all the students who are coming in and developing uh, new experiences for it. I guess we should probably quickly define what's the difference between the two, virtual and augmented reality. Right. So um, I'll speak to virtual reality. This is the one where you put on a headset and you completely obscure your view, but then you get the view replaced with this virtual scene. So it's like if you've seen the Ready Player One movie where you see something completely uh, computer generated. And uh, whereas augmented reality is it's more like uh, Tony Stark puts on his uh, Iron Man suit and he gets this additional information, heads up display given to him. So you see reality, but you also see this additional information given to you. But that's just about his view, not about his extra superpowers. <laughs> that's right. We can't give you that part. Yeah. yeah. That sort of gets to one thing I was wondering if you could, a notion you could disabuse me of perhaps, which is that when I think of virtual reality or even augmented reality, for example, like in the example of Pokemon Go, maybe. I mean, I think mm -hmm. of games and I think of gaming. Um, and is that what this stuff is good for? Or is there more to it than that? I mean, it's certainly good for that, but uh, we didn't build it so that students could have like the, uh, you know, all night Beat Saber parties, you know, in the rave at night, right? Uh, our goal was to have virtual reality and augmented reality in the service kind of uh, pedagogy, for one thing, like being able to teach concepts better, uh, largely from an engineering point of view. Uh, and then also, if a faculty member has a research project that would benefit from being visualized or experienced in VR or AR, uh, that's really what we're trying to focus on is stuff that's a little bit more um, you know, educational, researchy than just playing games. But I will say that, you know, a lot of the students who get involved in helping us develop for this space do know a little bit about gaming, right? They come from like our GSAS major, for example, and they understand how to put a game together and that helps in designing these good VR experiences. Yeah, and I think uh, we want to emphasize that uh, work in VR and AR has been going on for decades. And what's changed though with the 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 games, I guess, are now, but is, and the hardware has driven the price down to a point where we can start asking these questions. Can we use this technology for pedagogy and for different types of research that weren't possible before? So it's really, you know, the price point has come down to, to this place where these experiences can happen now that weren't possible before. So that's what is really exciting about this right now. 
Yeah, I mean, I've been reading about VR since I was in grad school, and you right. read about the cave and so on. And it all sounds so cool. And if you're lucky, you go get to visit one. Uh, but those at the time were, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollar installations uh, and way, way out of reach of the normal person. And now you can go to, you know, a department store and buy a good VR headset for 300 bucks. And if you have a little more spend, maybe a couple thousand bucks, you can get a pretty high end system. Uh, that was really unthinkable, I would even say, like five years ago. Well, since you mentioned grad school, I mean, what was your uh, your own personal journey to developing an interest in virtual reality and wanting to sort of work in this space and make sure that there was a literal space on this university campus to for others to explore it? Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll start. Um, my my journey to this place, I guess, started with. Um, a National Science Foundation proposal called a career proposal. It's a prestigious uh, award that uh, assistant professors are encouraged to apply for and strive to obtain. And a major component of that proposal is is to show how you're going to integrate your research with your teaching efforts. And and it has to, they don't want it to be you know artificial. They want it to be a real genuine um, way that you're combining these two things. And so I, I really spend a lot of time in thinking about, well, what is it that, that I can do that would marry the, the aspects of what I do in research? And what I do in research is primarily numerical simulations and optimization. And, and then I got to thinking, tangentially at the same time, there was all this coming out about the Oculus um, uh, and the HTC Vive. So these VR headsets were coming online. And I started to realize, well, I mean, I could combine these two things by saying have a virtual design environment or a place where students can virtually shape things and learn about um, various aerodynamic topics. So I realized that this may be a great way for me to combine both my simulation interests and the pedagogy. So I wrote this proposal and it was successful and then I started to you know develop over a couple summers with uh, help from uh, Professor Ben Chang and in Haas in the GSAS department, uh, this great uh, activity we now have for aerodynamics students. And from there, I think uh, various uh, people in the School of Engineering became aware of that effort, including the dean. And I think he started to get interested in expanding this effort and sort of started poking us in, or poking me at the time, I, I guess, about starting up this space, and I don't remember the exact sequence, but at some point I pointed out that I knew this guy, Rich Radke, <laughs> and I knew that this guy, Rich Radke, actually had quite a bit of experience with AR, VR, or VR at least, and I didn't mention exactly what that experience was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, your, your background seems much more noble than mine. I mean, I was, uh, I mean, I would say that I was probably more of a hobbyist in the sense that, um, I had a couple of VR systems in my lab, and I think that I largely bought them. Um, so my, my background is in computer vision, and so that means how do you develop algorithms that make sense out of the natural world from pictures and video in the same way that people do. And so um, one of the great things about being a professor is that you can kind of, you know, pursue whatever interests are really interesting to you. And so for me, one thing I was really interested in was visual effects, uh, and I started to get into that probably maybe 2011, something like that. And so I wrote a book on computer vision applied to the visual effects that you see in TV and movies and so on. And a big aspect of that, for example, is how do you 
accurately acquire 3D models of spaces, right? So uh, we had had a big uh, federally funded project on scanning, uh, you know, buildings on campus with this with this LIDAR scanner so we could build very accurate models of buildings. Uh, and I had some handheld devices that I had just for my own research, you know, tabletop 3D scanning. Um, and I had, you know, green screens and stuff for my class and so on. And, you know, 3D acquisition, you start to build models of 3D objects. And I think a natural step was then how could you visualize that stuff in virtual reality, really experience it instead of just looking at spinning on a laptop screen, right? Um, you know, but for me, like I said, it was much more of a hobby, right? I, I was playing VR games just because I was curious about them at home. And I had a couple of VR systems for my lab. And, you know, one thing about... Uh, lab type work. And one of the reasons why we built the rave is that, you know, when you're in a research lab, there's not a lot of space to move around, right? You know, you got desks everywhere, you've got 20 years of accumulated, you know, books and machines and crap lying around. And so really you can't, you know, wave your arms around without hitting anything, right? And so uh, VR offers the opportunity to be able to really physically move throughout a space um, in, you know, kind of human scale, right? Like you could, in theory, walk across a virtual room as long as you had enough space to walk. And so that was one of the reasons that we, why we built the rave the way we did is that we wanted to have a large environment where we didn't have tables and desks and chairs in the way where in theory you could have like a room-sized VR experience where you wouldn't have to suspend that, you know, suspend the disbelief to have to magically teleport from one place to another. You could really physically cover the ground in the same way as you would if you were in the real world. Right, because the, the way you built it is that it is essentially a room. Yeah, it's yeah. just a big empty room with rollable tables and stackable chairs, and you know. Yeah, I think it's a it's a striking room, but uh, it's surprisingly uh, void of, yes. of things. Well, the substance is in whatever's in those headsets. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. And so, what? Uh, I mean, you've uh, both alluded to to the idea that there are sort of research projects or activities that students might want to do that benefit from virtual or augmented reality. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some examples mm -hmm. of those? So I'll talk about the one that I developed for that proposal, which uh, is an aerodynamics-related um, educational activity. And what we're trying to teach students is what are different parameters or how different parameters on the wing of an aircraft uh, impact a particular type of drag that the aircraft experiences. And when we do this in a classroom setting, usually we'll have maybe a figure or we'll draw on the chalkboard and we'll describe some, some equations and those equations will have these parameters embedded in them. Um, and for some students, that the equation is enough. But for many students, it's not visceral enough. It's not, uh, it doesn't provide this intuition that we would like to give them. So what they get to do in this uh, immersive activity is uh, they, they put on the, the goggles, and they're basically in, in the sky floating beside an aircraft. And they can walk around the aircraft or float around it. And they have controllers that let them um, then reach out and change the shape of the wing. So this is just a little prop plane, but as they change the, the shape of the wing, either making, making it uh, longer, the span longer, or twisting the wing, they can immediately see the impact that this has on the drag. And so we have an arrow that indicates the, the amount of drag force on the aircraft, and they see which parameters make that arrow as small as possible. And I think that Again, maybe for some students, uh, they don't need this. But I think for many, it turns these equations that are very abstract into something very uh, real and visceral. Yeah, it sort of gives them an experience that they can remember rather than a, a text to memorize, kind of. Is that a fair yeah. way of? Yeah, the way I, I was thinking about it when I was um, writing the proposal, and I still think about it this way, is, uh, is that old adage, uh, teach, you know, 
or show someone how to fish uh, versus teaching them how to fish or giving them a fish. So if I show someone equations, um, it's not really going to sink in. If they have to write or drive the equations themselves, that's also very helpful. If you do that and then also have them as designers, as engineers, which is what we're, we're trying to do in, the, in our department, then if they get to actually change the shape, they're doing the design sort of on the fly and seeing the changes. I feel like that's uh, more, more powerful. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's really kind of, uh, I wouldn't say it's boring, but it's, it doesn't capture, you know, you can't describe virtual reality to somebody. You have to actually try on a headset and, and fool around with the controllers. As Jason says, it is very visceral to feel like you're in this environment and also that you can interact with it very naturally. Um, so, I could talk about a bunch of projects that, that are going on in the lab. So one um, that I just demonstrated to a bunch of industry visitors this morning has to do with, you know, we have this uh, occupancy sensing set up in one of our big office suites in this uh, this big center we have, the Lighting Enabled Systems and Application Center. And so um, that project has to do with how can you use these uh, basically like distance sensing rays. Imagine like the laser measuring tape at, at the hardware store. You know, the idea is that uh, you have a bunch of these uh, rays pointed outwards from the ceiling and you're trying to use the way that those rays are interrupted by people as they move around to infer how many people there are in the space. And you could use that, for example, to do better lighting control or better HVAC control. And so we have uh, algorithms for doing that. We have a, you know, a laptop simulation of it. But one of my students just put together a VR version of that where you put on the headset and you can teleport down into the kind of you know human scale version of the space. You feel like you're actually in there. And then uh, you actually see these rays coming down from the ceiling and you see these avatars walking through them and you can see how hard it is to avoid being hit by these rays coming down. So it might be that in principle you'd say, oh, you know, it's not possible to solve this problem with only a few of these sparse rays. But then you watch it and you say, oh, I can actually see why this should work, right? So it, it really does add, even for me, an extra dimension of why this whole, you know, research idea should work. So that's one thing. Another thing that I think is kind of cool is that, um, you know, I came to this through um, kind of a computer vision thing and there's this topic in computer vision called photogrammetry, which basically means building three-dimensional uh, environments from images alone. And so one of my students took a whole bunch of images of an environment, and then they, uh, you know, probably like you know, several hundred, maybe even a thousand pictures just around the second and third floor of the JEC building. And then they uh, used some off-the-shelf tools to synthesize a 3D model where you put on the helmet and you feel like you're walking around on the third floor, and then you can kind of, if you go to the top of the stairwell, you kind of instantaneously zip down to the second floor where the statue and the courtyard are. And, um, you know, the texture of the environment is not as good as a photograph, but you really do feel like a real sense of presence, especially if you're familiar with the space. And I think that goes back to what Jason was saying uh, earlier about how, you know, it's not necessarily about being 100% physically accurate in terms of texture or physics or anything like that, but, you know, your mind is willing to believe that you're in this space and, um, you know, you're willing to overlook the not quite real nature of it because it does feel, um, you know, very compelling. It, the one place where that not is not true is, um, which we haven't had a problem yet yet with, but is where there's motion. Oh, yes. So I gotta, I gotta tell you that. So one of my other students, um, I gave her the job of uh, basically taking this spherical camera that you press a single button, it's uh, called the Rico Theta. It's a really neat little gadget and it acquires an instant spherical 360 degree image of wherever you are. And it also takes video, right? So you can click this button, you can just 
put that right onto this uh, virtual headset, and then you can feel like you're in this environment. And I take it on vacation, and it's really nice to be able to revisit places I've been uh, in the headset. You know, it's it's a different experience than a photograph. So she gave this to a hockey player, and he uh, skated around the RPI rink with this thing in his hand. And uh, it's really weird to watch because... Um, you know, there are a lot of VR experiences that are similar to like like literally roller coaster experiences where they put the camera in the seat of a roller coaster. And because you're not moving from your chair, it feels OK. Like you feel like you're in a roller coaster. and It's kind of fun. But the hockey thing is is much different because the hockey player is moving and he's weaving from side to side and you're standing still uh, and looking around and maybe you're not looking where he's looking. And that that disconnect can be very disconcerting. Uh, and so that's one thing that uh, if you if you look at VR experiences, a lot of times they are more stationary or they give the user all the agency to move around. But they're not like, you know, you're replaying a movie that is from someone else's point of view. Right. If, if we want to scale this up um, and use this more broadly uh, for engineering and science education, we need to be worried about this, this sort of thing. Mm. But I think the good thing about. Um, the kind of applications we're thinking about for pedagogy is that uh, this probably won't be as big of a deal because mm -hmm. as, as I described with that airplane example, the student is walking around the airplane, so they are yep. actually feeling the motion. Um, actually, for me, the roller coaster even was uh, sort of sickness-inducing. So when I tried <laughs> yep. the, uh, the hockey, uh, uh, yeah. the ice hockey, it was really hard. It was uh, like a 30-second experience for me, and I had to take off the headset. <laughs> yeah, well, so that's a, there might be some people for whom this version of reality is just not a not the one that they not choose them, to yeah. participate in. Is that mm -hmm. fair enough? So I imagine there'll be there's some extent to which there will be students who don't want to engage in this sort of learning. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, we've, we've while I know that it's true that some people have like a, a real visceral aversion to VR sometimes, you know, we've, we've probably shown the lab to hundreds of people by now and no one has like had to like leave the lab because their head is spinning. I mean, I, I agree that maybe yeah. that type of learning is not for everybody. Um, hopefully most people can physically stand it. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess you might have to anticipate like in, in a population of a thousand, you're going to have maybe one or two students that for which you just like with any accessibility issue, you'd have to anticipate yeah. and, and have some uh, backups um, idea. Um, it might be enough for them to just experience it on a desktop, maybe. Yeah, and I do want to say that you know we we focused really so far almost exclusively on virtual, but I think that augmented is very different, right? That's so, true. Yeah. Um, you know, so augmented reality, um, you know, more stationary have, to some well, extent, perhaps. Not necessarily stationary, but more um, like you're you know you're in the real world, right? So um, you've got an anchor. Yes. So you're <laughs> you're looking world. at the scene and you are seeing stuff that is superimposed in it, right? Uh, and so. Uh, one example is, um, you know, uh, Ravi Shankar Sundara Raman. I think I got that name right on the first try. So he's in our material science department, right? And he's developed this thing where you look at a little pattern cube on a table and you look at it through your tablet, just like an off-the-shelf tablet, or you could use your phone or your iPad or whatever. And so when you hold it in front of the tablet, you see this, uh, you know, molecular structure superimposed on the cube, right? And so you're in full control of turning it to see how it changes as you move it around, and you can move the tablet around, and you're not like, you know, blocked off from reality, right? You're kind of like augmenting it by looking through a window into this next generation thing. And also the same thing is true with like, we have an example with a Microsoft HoloLens, which is a device that you put on your head. Um, and, uh, you know, the first generation is still, you know, working the kinks out in terms of it's not 100% comfortable, but it's not 
as weird as putting on a VR headset. Uh, and then you have your both hands free to be able to do things like manipulate a, you know, one student has developed this thing where it's a CNC milling machine, which has all sorts of like crazy buttons on it that are really hard to interpret. And so when you put this thing on, you see the machine, but then you see these kind of superimposed transparent graphics on the surface of the machine that says, okay, to, you know, if you're, if you feel like you're in danger, press this button. And if you want to set the, you know, width of this tool, you know, you turn this knob. And so that stuff kind of appears as these floaty instructions in the th- in the real world. And I don't think anyone would really find that off-putting. I mean, I think that that's probably, you know, very acceptable for, for everybody. Yeah, that's a much easier experience, I would say. Yeah. So uh, you did mention that it's sort of in its early stages and there's still mm-hmm. kinks to be worked out. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously just the rave itself is only a few months old at mm-hmm. the time we're recording this. Uh, where do you see this going? Or uh, I guess both mm-hmm. the physical space that we have here mm-hmm. uh, at the Rensselaer campus and just this use of VR and AR and pedagogy in general? Well, one of the reasons why the space exists is precisely to figure out where is this going. It's, it's not really uh, an end in itself. Uh, the space is really about um, trying things out, both for teaching and pedagogy and for research. And it's, it's hard to really predict where it's going to go. I, I'd like to see potentially um, some courses where there are t- subjects where they're either too expensive or too dangerous to do labs for. For example, chemical engineering might want to do a, a chemical plant uh, shutdown, emergency shutdown, and they could do that in virtual reality. Um, but we have to try it out. We have to. There's things that we need to figure out, mm-hmm. like does this scale to uh, 50 student classrooms? Um, how, does this um, actually produce um, better student learning outcomes? Mm, yeah. I mean, we're not coming into this, you know, completely sold on on everything. We're just we just think that it's very uh, worthwhile looking at. Yeah, I mean, really, what I'm hoping is, you know, up to this point, a lot of the stuff that's been going on in the lab has been work of my students and Jason's students, and you know, the goal of it is that it's not just our place, right? We want to hook up interested students with faculty members and people who have interesting problems or interesting pedagogical ideas. And then just have a space where people can develop that stuff without, um, you know, with all the tools there, without bumping into things, right? And so that's already starting to happen in terms of finding people on campus who are, you know, excited about, oh, I've got this idea. Can I prototype it in your lab? And we say, sure, right? Uh, and that's something where it would be nice where we pass by the lab and it's bustling with students who are developing their own projects. Uh, and I think that that's starting to happen. I mean, certainly now there are a whole bunch of people that. I'm passing by and I say, oh, the lab, there's someone in the lab. What are they doing? You know, it's not something that I put there. So, uh, and that's nice. That's a nice feeling. Well, and I mean, speaking of bringing in other people and uh, also specifically with you guys having formed this thing, you know, at Rensselaer, we have this idea that sort of drives the university called the New Polytechnic, which is all about breaking down barriers and fostering collaboration. Uh, so as collaborators yourselves, I was just wondering if you had lessons learned or thoughts on what makes for a good collaboration from this project so far? Well, in this case, uh, I'm pretty fortunate because uh, Rich is pretty like-minded in many <laughs> respects, so I haven't had a whole lot of uh, issues with, you know, completely uh, orthogonal thoughts. Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, like, certainly, um, you know, even before we built the lab, right, we had to make a ton of decisions about what equipment are we going to buy and physically, what are we going to need in the space, right, in terms of how we set the whole place up. And so that that was, you know, 
months and months of, of figuring stuff out. And, you know, um, that was just like kind of the two of us collaborating, right? Um, along with all the physical facilities, people who helped us out to build the place, right? And, and to procure the stuff. Um, you know, hopefully uh, we built the space to hold, you know, 15, 20 people at a time doing a whole bunch of different things, right? And so I'm, for example, really excited to take my class there next semester to do a few you know, 3D acquisition and, you know, then see it right in VR immediately activities, right? Uh, and to see how people kind of bounce off each other and say, oh, this is a cool thing. Let me try that. You know, let me adopt this idea. And even just today, giving the tour to some people who had never seen the space before, I came away with some ideas about stuff for my own research and teaching that I wouldn't have had if we hadn't had a whole bunch of people in the same room kind of experiencing it for the first time. So... Yeah, one uh, one of the things about building this space has been that it has you know exposed me to a, a lot of people, a lot of their work, uh, and their interest in using the space and the things that they think that they could could do with it. So, um, I've had a great experience collaborating with with Rich, and I expect that I'm going to have a great experience with many other people because they've they're coming out of the woodwork, so to speak. Yes, that's right. Well, excellent. Well, thank you for coming out of the woodwork and joining <laughs> us today. No problem. No problem. Why Not Change the World is recorded in the soloist suite at MPAC, the Curtis R. Prem Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Thank you to the MPAC staff for their assistance, and thank you for listening.